Hi, I'm Mark Lindsay, and I am thrilled to be with you all to today. Um, welcome to North Wake. Um, we'll have a time after the service if you'd like to come down and meet any of us, and there's also the, the welcome meet and greet outside as well. But I'd love to, um, to get to know you if I haven't gotten to meet you before. But I get to open a, a great passage um, with you today. But I've noticed something interesting in my work as a network engineer, a software developer, that engineers can have funny definitions of what's real work. You know, um, people will have different ways of saying, well, that's real work and that's not. So in my work as an engineer, um, you, we joke about this um, when we see it in each other. So imagine you're sitting there in your, your uh, office chair. It's cushy. You've got a cup of steaming coffee. It's air-conditioned. You're working on your laptop. If you're typing in computer code, then that's real work. But if you're in the same chair with the same coffee and you're making a PowerPoint presentation, that's not real work. It doesn't really count. Uh, if you're drawing a diagram and you've got routers and switches and networking on it, well, that would count as real work. That's real work. But if you're making a plan of the order of installation and maybe the costs of these things and the timelines and deadlines, that's not real work. And we think it's kind of funny because um, basically it shows us what we value, what we think is really important. Um, Jesus gave us all this work of making disciples, and we Christians will often focus on certain important elements, teaching, preaching, evangelism, one-on-one -on -one conversations, church planting, and everything that goes along with that. And those are critical, of course. But our passage today really focuses on a type of real work. And we know it's real because the Bible says it's real. And it's essential for the work that God commissioned us to do. It's the ministry work that's available to every believer, no matter what your situation, what your health is, um, what's happened to you in the past. And that work is prayer. So pray with me as we open this passage. Father, we ask for your help to understand what your words are saying. Please show us the truth of the importance of coming to you with our needs on behalf of one another. Lord, don't let my words be any kind of distraction, but let everyone in this room hear and see you and understand and be moved by you. Lord, we ask for your help. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today we're going to talk about several things in the last few verses of Colossians. So you can open your app or your physical paper Bible to Colossians 4. Um, we're going to talk about the partners in the ministry. We're going to talk about this fellow named Epaphras. Uh, we're going to talk about some, a prayer that he prayed. Um, and then some of the topics that he brought up that Daniel has already talked about are maturity. Um, and then we're going to talk about what do we do with this? How do we apply this as North Wakers? So first, look in Colossians 4, and we're first going to see how Paul demonstrates teamwork in his ministry, starting in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you? They will tell you of everything that has taken place. Jump down to verse 16. And when this letter that Tychicus is bringing has been read among you, have it read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that they read the letter from Laodicea. See that you also in the church in Colossae read the letter from Laodicea. So we see many names and one of them is Tychicus. Um, he delivered the letter uh, from Paul to the Colossian church so that we're at the closing here and we're told who's doing that delivery. And he traveled with a man named Onesimus. 
It seems this traveling pair, Tychicus and Onesimus, carried three letters. One was this regional letter to the churches in the Laodicea region, the Lycus Valley. Another letter to the Colossian church personally, which has a lot of personal notes in it. That's what we're looking at right now. And then a third letter to a man named Philemon. And so we know, if you've studied the story of Philemon, that there is this character named Onesimus. And so what you have is uh, a case of a formerly enslaved person, or potentially some kind of contract that he had violated. He had broken that contract. He'd become a Christian. He had gone, ministered, and served with Paul, and then he's being sent back. And so we have a regional letter, a single church letter, and then a, a letter to an individual person. Let's look at Colossians 4, 10, and 11. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So Paul is here emphasizing the presence of Christians who are both Jewish and non-Jewish. Uh, This reference to Jesus is not Jesus Christ of Nazareth, although we know that Jesus was with them in that prison cell. Uh, This is a different man named Jesus who has the fairly common name, probably pronounced something like Yeshua in in Hebrew, but he had a name that he went by in the Greek community, uh, Justice, just like Saul had a Hebrew name and Paul his Greek name. We also see Mark uh, is here. He's the writer of the gospel. He was a close associate with Peter. Um, And in the book of Acts, we read there was some kind of dispute about Mark. It may have been simply as minor as whether to go to this city first or that city first. So it may have been simple logistics. But there was uh, some cloud around Mark, and and maybe this was the reason for having received separate instructions. So there was some sort of note saying, hey, you guys should welcome Mark. Um, And Paul really glows with affirmation for these Jewish Christians who have helped him. Now let's jump down to verse 14 as we think about the partners that he has. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So they're really greetings from many people to many people. And these are a bit like, these are brief greetings. They really remind me a bit of like text messages. They're like just a short note here or there. And have you thought of how encouraging it is to hear from somebody who's checking on you in a tough situation? Have you thought about, like for the Ansleys, how encouraging it is for them to hear from you? You may not be one who's really into texting. Maybe you use email or some other kind of social media. But that can be a real encouragement to folks to have you uh, check up on them. So that's what we kind of see here. We see um, text messaging from 2,000 years ago. And yes, it was very slow. uh, And it was expensive. So you can follow this example too. Reach out and touch base with the folks that we pray for and that you know um, who are elsewhere. Uh, Note also that Paul has another gospel writer with him, Luke the physician. So there is Paul, you know, in this rat-infested, dripping prison, and he has two writers of the gospels with him. Um, That had to be an amazing way to access more about the life of Jesus so we've talked about the partners in ministry. Let's, let's drill down into this one in the middle, Epaphras. Um, in verse uh, 12, um, Paul is going to mention Epaphras. Now, Epaphras showed up right at the beginning of the book, and we'll, we'll read that. Um, but many believe that Epaphras was the evangelist, kind of someone with apostolic gifts, who founded the church at Colossae. Let's look at Colossians 1, 3 through 8, where we see Epaphras introduced. 
We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And jumping a bit, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the Colossians, we're told here, definitely learned the gospel from Epaphras. That's why we think maybe he was the church planter there. They learned that Jesus was the Son of God from Epaphras. They learned that Jesus had come in bodily form to live among us. Um, to show, he showed us what God was like. We, we look at the way Jesus lived. We know the Father by watching him. And then Epaphras explained to them what the Bible teaches us, that Jesus died for them. He, he died. He paid the penalty for everything wrong they had ever done, every sin. He later rose again, and that proved that he was God's chosen man, that he was the Messiah, he was the Savior of the world, and that made a way for us to live in a happier relationship with God forever. And if you're here, and there's parts of that that are fuzzy to you, I'd love to talk with you and pray with you, or talk to the person that you know here, or someone you came with, perhaps. But that's what Epaphras told the Colossians. That was the message they got. That was the the heart of it. And he came from Colossae to Rome to spend time with Paul in prison. He told Paul about love in that church that had heard that gospel and then had started to live that way. Um, So if you imagine if you were telling somebody about your experience at North Wake, um, what would you tell them? You know, if you've been in a small group very long, I bet you'd probably have some pretty good stories. If you thought past the sort of the busyness of the last few days and you thought back, well, all those things that had happened. Um, you know, I've had the, the pleasure of being in small groups led by many other leaders in my time here at North Wake. Uh, some of those leaders are here in the room, and um, we've celebrated births together. Uh, we've had little kids together, and uh, we've celebrated new jobs and selling companies. Uh, we've celebrated um, many little victories and, and blessings. We, we've also been with each other in hospitals and at funeral homes. Um, We've shared many thousands of homemade desserts with one another and uh, lots and lots of coffee. We've seen each other in serious financial need, and we've um, had opportunities to quietly um, be there for one another in that. We've gone on hikes with each other and just talked about kind of nothing while we're struggling up a mountain. Um, And at times when someone has struggled in deep sin, we've had to deal with it. We've dropped everything and met at night on a back porch to talk about what was going on to help pull someone back. So I can imagine Epaphras bringing up stories like that of just the beautiful love that was happening in the church at Colossae. And that's what happens at our small groups. Paul mentions Epaphras at the beginning of the book and then again at the end of the book. So let's look at uh, Colossians 4, 12 and 13 at that prayer. So we saw Colossians, how he was the founder of the church. Now let's look at his prayer. In verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. So we're told here, Epaphras struggles on behalf of the Colossians. And that already sounds a little strange because he's, he's hundreds or thousands of miles away. Epaphras asks God in these struggles that the Colossians may stand mature and be fully assured in all the will of God. Let me start with that second expression first briefly here. What does it mean to be fully assured in all the will of God? Does that mean that they know everything God's ever going to do? Well, obviously not. There are some things that God has yet to reveal. Um, and God gives us great flexibility, it seems. But this is confidence in knowing God 
and comfort in what you know to be true. Uh, it's not good to feel uncertain and wavering in your trust of God, to, to feel like you're not quite sure. And Paul is praying that they would feel sure, that they would feel that comfort of confidence and knowing that what God has said is really true. But then he also prays for their maturity. Uh, but what is maturity? So this word is used, in, the Greek word is used throughout the New Testament, and it carries the sense of being fully grown, not a child anymore. Uh, it carries a sense of completeness. Like imagine you see a puzzle with all the pieces, and every piece is there. There's not a piece missing. Or you bake a new cake. My, my wife loves to bake. I love to uh, consume what she bakes. And when there's a complete pie or a complete cake, no pieces have been cut out of it. That's a complete um, cake. That's a complete pie. And so that's, a, that's the same kind of sense of completeness here. There's nothing missing from it. And Epaphras is praying for them to be complete and not childlike. Maturity, or being a complete person, was a big goal for, for Paul um, and for, all, for Paul, for all the church everywhere. We say our big goal at North Wake is to reach the lost and equip them to join with us in the process of becoming mature and ministering worshipers of God. So maturity and ministering, these are really, a really big deal for us here at North Wake. It's who we are. It's what we do. It's, we work toward that goal of helping one another be mature. Sometimes it's helpful when you're trying to get at the definition of a word to think about the opposites. So what's the opposite of maturity? We see uh, that explained a little bit in Ephesians 4. It's another book uh, that Paul wrote to a nearby church in Ephesus. So let's look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, where Paul is saying that uh, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. So this passage kind of gives us two parts of kind of the, the uh, opposite definition of thinking about, or you could say it's giving us a definition of immaturity. So being immature is being like a child, which is, in this context, seems to be lacking ability, lacking defensive ability to, to continue to believe what's right. And being immature is also compared to being in maybe a small boat in a windy sea tossed about by every new idea and false teaching. So it's being swayed around. Um, whatever shows up in your, in your feed or whatever shows up as the uh, suggested for you videos on YouTube, if those ideas push you around, make you feel like, well, maybe there's something new I've never heard. That's what it's like to be tossed around. So this concern against false teaching being tossed around like this by, by false teaching has really been a key concern of the whole book of Colossians. We've seen it. False teachers were trying to say that Jesus wasn't supreme. They might have been overemphasizing some kind of importance of angels beyond what Scripture actually tells us about angels, that they are ministering spirits sent by God. Some were suggesting that keeping Jewish festivals was really the key, like that's the thing, or maybe like holding back, don't eat this, don't touch that, but some sort of asceticism, that that was really the key. So these are all false beliefs that Paul was, was writing about and warning them against. So protection against false teaching has really been a key concern in Colossians. So we talked about, you know, some of what the definition of maturity is. But let me talk about a couple of um, common points of confusion we have about this. One is that maturity has mostly to do with your knowledge of Scripture. You might think, for example, that a lifetime of Bible study might make you mature. Or maybe a degree from a seminary 
would make you mature. Like, they, have, they give me a piece of paper, it has a seal, it's signed. Um, but it's easy to get a sense of being smart about God. That's, that's something uh, Dr. Lederbach, who preached last week, actually, um, an expression he used one time, that he warned against getting smart about God instead of actually knowing God personally. The writer of Hebrews uh, discusses this risk of kind of being smart about God but not really mature when um, he's discussing the kind of priest that Jesus is. And we see this, we're going to jump right into the middle of Hebrews 5, uh, verse 11. About this, this thing about Jesus being a kind of priest, a Melchizedek kind of priest, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So the writer of Hebrews is giving us part of the requirement to become mature. Uh, This book is saying there's a risk to your maturity of hearing and learning things but failing to act. Um, If you choose to ignore what you know to be right and wrong, you're eroding your maturity right there. And note here that these readers, uh, these original readers of the book of Hebrews, they've regressed. They actually knew things in the past, but they've now now become dull of hearing. Uh, Somehow they've stepped back. And so sorrowfully, maturity is not a one-way street. You know, we think about someone growing old. It's a one-way street. You always get older. You never, there's no going younger. But in spiritual maturity, you can actually go backwards. Um, you can go from great knowledge, great confidence, sincere obedience, passion for Christ, and yet become dull. Pastor John Piper describes it this way. If you want to become mature and understanding the more solid teachings of the Word, then the rich, nutritional, precious milk of God's gospel, promises must transform your moral senses, your spiritual mind, so that you can discern between good and evil. Or let me put it another way. Getting ready to feast on all God's word is not first an intellectual challenge. It is a moral challenge. If you want to eat the solid food of the word, you must exercise your spiritual senses so as to develop a mind that discerns between good and evil. And let me stop right here and say, God wants to help you in this. This isn't something I do or you do on your own. God wants to help you develop that sense of distinguishing. Your decisions shape your mind. Your ability to understand is shaped by the decisions you make or you choose not to make. And it can limit or enable your growth to maturity. So it could be that you struggle to grasp justification, the sense that God has declared you righteous, because of choices you're making on streaming. Or perhaps you stumble over God's words on submission to government authority um, because of decisions you make in your business, the way you manage your money. So are you prayerful and careful in the choices of what to watch and what to say and what to do and how to manage your money? The writer of Hebrews is telling us that this kind of care is necessary to grow in maturity. So there's another kind of misconception about the, the understanding of maturity I would just want to touch on. You could be confused because I talked about maturity as being not childlike in the sense of being uh, unable. But Jesus actually says, well, you should become like children. In, in Matthew 18, um, Jesus says, 
At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him as a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus emphasizes that we accept him as humble children, trusting with nothing to offer, no expectations, no demands. But childlike knowledge and childlike decision-making is not what Jesus is really talking about in this context. He's talking about humility. And we as Christians should be progressing not away from humility, but away from sin. The writer of Hebrews is speaking to people who have been Christians for some time when he says, by this point you should have been teachers. But you're living, your choices are holding you back. So that's maturity. There's this other kind of interesting statement that Paul says in this prayer, uh, about this prayer of Epaphras, where he says it's work. Um, what kind of work is going on there? What does he mean by work? Does he really mean it? You know, Colossians starts and ends with people exerting great effort for the completeness and the maturity of the church. We see uh, in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul exerting himself. Um, he described himself as struggling with energy Christ provides. Let's read that together in Colossians 1. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The writer John Stott describes it this way. He says, Paul's great longing is to go beyond evangelism to discipleship and to present everyone mature in Christ. And because this is the goal on which he spent his energies, so should we. Both Greek verbs, labor and struggle, express metaphors which imply physical exertion. The first is used of the farm laborer, and the second of a competitor in Greek games. Both conjure up a vision of rippling muscles and pouring sweat. So that's Paul describing his work. Now let's look at Paul describing Epaphras' work in Colossians 4, 12 and 13 again. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. That really sounds familiar, doesn't it? It sounds like he's describing Epaphras' prayer as being really analogous to his, his work. You know, in a sense, prayer is a struggle for everyone. Um, prayer is a struggle because it requires us to submit to God's greatness and our smallness. We go to God. He's our source, our spring, and our supply. And we go with an empty bucket for him to fill it. We don't go and bring him anything as an offering. We go empty, and we go to him to, to be supplied. You know, even conversation of any kind can be a struggle. We have many other things pulling at our attention, and prayer is a kind of conversation. Prayer is a struggle because of spiritual warfare. Uh, Ephesians says we wrestle against powers and principalities, rulers, authorities, spiritual forces of evil. Satan does not want you to pray, and he will attempt to prevent it. We see that Epaphras worked hard, tirelessly, with earnestness. He toiled strenuously in prayer, asking God to help them. This kind of prayer is called intercessory prayer, which just means prayer for someone else. He didn't just pray once. He prayed multiple times. He prayed seriously, and it was serious because he knew how bad the disaster would be if um, the friend, his friends in Colossae were left incomplete. You know, so all this talk of prayer is a struggle, 
It seems kind of like a hard message, doesn't it? But author and lawyer David Limbaugh writes that this description of prayer should really comfort us and encourage us. We often struggle to bring ourselves to pray and also struggle during prayer. I know that's my experience. We don't always want to do it, and when we do, we sometimes aren't sure we are doing it correctly or effectively. We wonder, are we really connecting with God or just going through the motions? Paul's description here assures us that we are not abnormal in our struggling with prayer and that it does not come naturally. So we still have to deal with this question of prayer is work. Paul says he worked hard. Epaphras worked hard. So why is prayer hard work? It's hard work because the result is out of our control. Work is so much easier when you can control the result, isn't it? You can see what you're doing. You know that you're making progress. That's so much easier. Uh, It's hard because he sees the risk to his friends. He knows this is serious. It's hard work because he did it consistently and carefully and thoughtfully. And I'm sure part of it was that Epaphras had to work hard to find the right words. He had to know what to pray. What should I ask God to do? What exactly do my friends in Colossae need? So in these two examples of work, we see both men, Paul and Epaphras, being dependent on the power of God to accomplish any good But I want to warn you about something here. While prayer can be a kind of work, prayer is not primarily work. Um, First and foremost, prayer is about someone you meet, not something you do. Uh, As a follower of Christ, prayer is not primarily about a list you make. Prayer is an opportunity to talk to God, uh, who has all power, who's the maker of the universe, the sustainer, who dearly loves you as a heavenly father. He is the dad who always has time. He always listens with his full attention. And he never needs your help. He's not listening for you to finish so that he can, you know, so that he can interrupt and give you something to do. He he doesn't need your help. He's he's there. He's all-powerful. And so for these reasons, the fact that we go to have this relationship with our Father to spend time with him, prayer and work don't quite seem to fit together in our minds. We think of work as something we do to accomplish a goal or earn an income. It's something we do, we think of it as something we do in our own power. Um, But this is really a mistake. You know, all of our strength to do any good comes from God anyway. Um, Moses actually warned the children of Israel about this before they went into the promised land. Um, He warned them and he said, things are going to be good. He said in Deuteronomy 8, 17 and 18, beware lest you say in your heart, my prayer and my might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. So a common mistake about work we make is that we attribute it, any of it, to our own power and ability. All the power to do any work you do, Sunday through Saturday, comes from God. And the only power of praying is in the God that we pray to. Prayer is a work you can do for someone else, regardless of your health or your situation, whether you've been disqualified for some other kind of ministry or nobody knows about your gifting. There's a great book on prayer by a Norwegian teacher, Ola Halsby. He lived in the early 20th century. He told a story of a village in Norway where people would go to visit. They would go to visit this lady. She she was known for her prayer. She was actually bedridden at the time he wrote the book. She would lie there in bed, and they would come and sit by the fire in her small cottage. And people every day of the week would come and ask her to pray for them, and they knew that she was going to pray. You may want to serve God, and you may wonder what work is available to me. This is a, the work of praying for people you know is available to every believer who trusts that God hears and responds. 
I told you I was a network engineer and a programmer, and um, I've been working on internet stuff, building internet routers and such since the uh, network, since the 90s. And, and to fix things in our industry, we often do something called a maintenance window. So uh, I'll set an alarm and get up, and maybe around 3 a.m., so that's kind of the minimum time for east coast, west coast, and we'll do some changes to some routers or switches or servers, and usually everything goes fine. You make a plan, you, you follow your plan. But picture this, it doesn't always go fine. So it's like 3.30 a.m., I'm at home in Wake Forest. Uh, I'm trying to keep my voice down so I don't wake up my daughter who's you know, asleep in the house right above me. Um, and in California, I've just broken somebody's router. And there's like thousands of people who now, if they were to wake up and pick up their smartphone, it wouldn't work. Like they couldn't make any calls. Um, as soon as people start waking up around 6 a.m. Eastern time, it's gonna be an emergency. So what do I do? I call for help. Now you have to be sort of thoughtful about who you're gonna call. My boss has more experience than me, very smart guy, always eager to help, but he's in Georgia. And if this router that I bricked is in California, he's not gonna be able to help that much. I might call my, my customer, but my customer might be in this, you know, work really near the piece of equipment that I messed up, but he doesn't have the skills. That's why he asked me to help, right? So I, you know, I need to call the right person in the right place with the right skills. Um, so fortunately, I can uh, always have, uh, almost always have a contact in the data center where I'm doing work. So there's somebody I can call and I can get them on the phone and say sort of sheepish, like right, I broke a router in this rack and can you go here and turn off the power and turn it back on? So yes, literally, that's how we fix it. We turn it off and turn it back on. <laughs> and this reminds me, in desperate need for somebody at the right place with the right capability of prayer to God for people who are somewhere else. Let me say it differently. Now, we do this prayer because we can trust that God hears and helps. Just like I call the, the smart hands technician in the data center in California, I, I know that they can hear and help. I know that God can hear and help. I have to believe that or else prayer doesn't make any sense. Intercessory prayer is an act of worship and faith. You won't pray unless you believe God can hear you. And you won't pray unless you believe God can do something about it. Or let me put it positive. It, it makes logical sense to pray because God is present where the need is greatest. He is capable of reaching out and changing things. And God does respond and do the very best thing when we ask him. So how do we follow this example? How do we follow Epaphras' example uh, in Colossians? You know, he prayed for people he knew seriously and maturity, and he was praying for their maturity. It can be kind of hard to love the whole church. You know, our, our theme this year, our focus is treasuring church. And that can feel a little bit amorphous, like it's hard to love like all these people. I barely know a lot of them. Um, but God really desires us to pray for people we actually know, individuals we actually know. And small groups is the ideal context in which to do this, um, to follow the good example of Epaphras. You know, if you're a member of Northwake Church, uh, you signed a membership covenant and when you joined, and then every time we introduce new members and you reaffirm that covenant, one of those things in that covenant is about this exact topic. Um, I think we've got a quote from the, the covenant on here. Before God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we prayerfully covenant together. And the number three on the list is to regular fellowship with an individual or small group for the purpose of encouragement, support, and accountability. And that's in the covenant. We all agree to that because we all agree about how important that is. Now, it's easy for schedules to change and and to get a little bit off track. And so we can kind of get disconnected from that, even if we value it. 
But what greater support to others can you bring than prayer to the Almighty God? Do you have people in your life who know you well enough to pray for your maturity? Author Chris Martin writes, How open are you with the people around you? Do you tell your small group that you're always irrationally afraid that you're going to lose your job? Or do you just smile and talk about how everything at work is fine? When you go to coffee with a friend, do you share your struggles with parenting teenagers? Or do you just chit-chat about the start of the new school year? Does your spouse know you struggle with lust? Instagrams and Twitters and TikToks, algorithms do. Many of us have deeper relationship with the algorithms than with the people of our churches. This is not surprising. When we spend more time tapping on our screens than we do talking with our friends, our algorithms know us better than our loved ones do. Small group gives you people who can get to know you well enough to pray for your maturity. And God loves to hear these prayers. This is the the very work that every Christian can do. So when you came in this morning, you were handed a card printed on both sides. It's a blue card. On one side, you'll see many of the key markers of maturity from the book of Colossians that we have studied through together. Based largely on the image of a home, there's a foundation or a clear understanding of Christ and his greatness. You can think of like the structure, the walls and the roof as being the protection uh, that comes through the confidence in the gospel, protects us against false teaching. And then the living on the bottom part, the ways we go about living our lives, just like people live in a house to make it a home. And on the other side, there are 10 slots. On the top, there's a slot for yourself. Where do you sense God is calling you to make the next step to grow in maturity? Will you just pick one item from the other side and ask for God's help? And then there are nine blanks below that, which is kind of a lot, actually, of other people to, you can put their name and then something that you can pray for them, a way that you can pray for them to grow in maturity. Talk to them about this. Ask them how you can pray for them. Have this conversation. Fill this out together. As a, as a small group. So you can use this language. I, I try to be careful to use biblical language here on this side so that we can stick uh, closely to the same kind of teaching that Paul was doing and prayers that Epaphras was praying. Um, and we can pray those same kinds of prayers for our small groups, our friends and family. Um, bring this card to your prayer and accountability time at small group. Pray regularly, not just the first time, you know, not just when you first write it down. That's great. You should pray then, but pray regularly. Professor David Garland writes, a technique to increase efficiency in automobile manufacturing is to have materials manufactured just in time, just as needed. This tactic may work in industry, but it does not work in prayer. If we expect our prayer life to have any effect on our lives and on our world, it cannot be sporadic or haphazard. We cannot fall back on prayer only when we think we'll need it. We must devote ourselves to it. You know, Epaphras did this because he dearly loved the people back home in Colossae. Prayer is a work he did because he knew it was right and he sincerely desired good for them. You know, if you don't feel that love yet for other people around you, that's the place to start. Ask God to increase your love so that you're willing to pray for them. But maybe you look at this and you say, who are the people praying for me? Um, Who are the people I can pray for? And if you're not in a small group right now, we want to help you to get information about small groups. We want to make this easy. So there's a yellow card as well. Uh, You can use the QR code. Just give give us your name and email address. 
and, uh, or you can put your name and email here and drop it in the offering box at the back. And this week, we're going to send you a couple of emails with just some simple information about how to get connected to small groups, to, just to know what's available and what the options are. Uh, pray about this and ask God to help you to be connected. Um, if you're in a small group and you're not regularly praying for the maturity of one another, then bring this to your small group. Pray for the maturity of each other. Northwake, join this ministry of prayer. Prayer for the maturity of each other. Please pray with me now. Father, we trust that you hear us. We believe that you are capable, that you are able to do good, to bring about maturity. We know that you have promised to bring to completion the work that you have started. Lord, and you've called us to this prayer. Um, Allow us to come before you consistently um, with real energy that you give us to pray for the growth of one another. And Lord, allow us to be honest with one another about our needs and our, our, um, our uh, growth for maturity that is needed. Lord, be with us and help us in this, this ministry work. Thank you for giving us your word. And it's in your name I pray. Amen.